0: Welcome to Sarian Strategic Partners podcast, a podcast focused on pre-transaction planning strategies and commentary for founders, entrepreneurs, and executives. Our team's mission is to help ensure that you obtain the maximum net value from your life's work. We work with you to develop pre-transaction planning strategies to help position you for personal financial success by identifying key techs estate, and gifting issues prior to a sale or exit of your company. I'm your host, Greg Sarian, CEO and founder of Sarian Strategic Partners. All right, well, I will uh, begin our our forum tonight by introducing myself. My name is Greg Sarian, and I'm the CEO of Sarian Strategic Partners. We are a pre-transaction financial consulting firm uh, based in Wayne, And we help founders and entrepreneurs of companies who are looking to go through uh, exit sale, merger, acquisition. We help them derive the best outcome from their equity component. And in a few minutes, I'll be introducing uh, our other presenters this evening. But I want to share with you why we're putting this program on this evening. Uh, Our team has been fortunate to help founders, executives, and entrepreneurs through more than 100 transactions. And one of the things we consistently see across industry, across the board, is those those executives that take some time, 12, 18, 36 months before an event, to thoughtfully consider various outcomes and planning strategies before they close, oftentimes have a better outcome and derive more from their equity component and keep more of what they have built. So that's the spirit of tonight, is to really share with you key planning ideas and strategies uh, at two levels, because we're fortunate enough uh, to have Tony Parisi from Strategic Exit Advisors, who's going to speak at an entity level on what can you do as a founder, leader in your company to drive the best outcome valuation at the company level. And then Kevin and I and Morgan will talk through some of the personal planning strategies to help your family get the best outcome from your life's work. So, uh, I want to introduce our uh, guest speaker, Tony Parisi. Tony is a graduate of Brown University and has had more than 25 years of experience in mergers, acquisitions, and corporate finance. And he'll be speaking at that entity level. My partner, Kevin Wager, is also a certified financial planner and works with many of our founder executive clients through the planning process we're going to discuss. And my partner, Morgan Buswell. Is our director of communications and is going to serve as our moderator this evening. So, uh, Morgan, I'll I'll turn it over to you to begin our program with Tony.
1: Great. Thanks, Greg. So, I just want to kick it off to Tony um, with an opening question. So, to get us started, Tony, can you talk about the reasons that a company owner decides in the first place why they want to sell their company and what concerns they may have just at the beginning of this process?
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks Morgan, and thanks Greg and Kevin. So, Strategic eggs Advisors we're an investment bank, and really what we specialize in is helping entrepreneurs sell their business. And we know that this is likely the most important transaction of their lives. And so, understanding owner priorities are that's where we begin and and where we end, and that's how we'll we'll, we'll show things here. And Morgan, to your question, there are, there are different reasons certainly that. That owners will decide to, to sell or to start to think about exiting their business for, for many people it is a time of life thing. Uh, they, they're at a point where they they have plans they have other interests in life they might even have grandkids and that, uh, that that plays that plays a role in wanting to sell, wanting to convert their biggest asset which is likely their their business. Into something that's, uh, that they can invest and, uh, in, in a more diverse way and and and, and put into different uh, and put in different parts of their lives. Sometimes that uh, they, there's no succession plan that's readily available. Sometimes people will sell because they want to, even though they want to continue to own the business they want to take some meaningful dollars off the table and again diversify their wealth for for some people they want to they really want to scale up and they need they need more equity and one way to do that is to to sell a part of their business and for some people they they feel like they've accomplished what what they wanted a, a couple of years ago we sold a, a business for a client who had grown the business from two and a half million in revenues to to 25 in revenues and two and a half in cash flow and that Seemed like a good time for him to sell the business and and move on. So there are other reasons. Those were those are the ones I I put at the top. And then from there, it's really for us figuring out uh, what the, the owner's priorities are. It's a it's a personal thing. A lot of emotions coming along with the decision to sell the business. Entrepreneurs tend to be people who are very much in control. They have a great deal of pride in their business. They're protective of their people and they're, they're, they're undertaking a big change of life. Uh, and there's even there's even fear that that, that goes along with that very naturally. It does they have the courage to go forward with it despite the fear? But there are very natural feelings of uneasiness. So we will really uh, spend a lot of time with our clients, understand their their objectives around timing, what's important to them, and it's always knowing that they got a fair deal, a deal that they're that they're happy that they struck. we will, uh, One of the main considerations is, do they want to sell and get out immediately? What's their horizon for, for exiting the business? Some people want to stay for the, the foreseeable future. Um, and some people want to get out uh, as, as quickly as they can because they have other plans. People are concerned about their employees. That's often uh, the, number one can, the number one priority for people is preserving their preserving jobs. People want to make sure that they sell where their legacy is going to be honored, that it's a fit from a culture standpoint. And then uh, people are also concerned about confidentiality uh, and releasing information appropriately. So we'll structure each exit for our clients, each process and then structure transactions around those priorities.
1: And I know, you know, prior to this call, we've talked about your readiness assessment tool. So I guess I'll start with a question. I'll let you go into it. But with this assessment, do you recommend just the business owner perhaps taking a readiness assessment to gauge where they're at? Or is this something where you recommend an entire management team or to take this together? Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Sure,
2: Morgan. It's it's usually the it's usually the owners. The issue of sharing plans, of uh, owners sharing plans with the management team, it's an important issue, and it's one we we spend time working with our clients through. And it's it's different for every co- for just about every company. We're we're in the middle of uh, working with a client who has literally told every one of their 108 employees that they're selling the business. And for them, that works for a variety of reasons. And we have another client who we sold last year. He told one of or two of his employees up mm-hmm. until the the day that, uh, the, the, that the wires cleared. So it varies. And, and that really informs a lot of this. And at the same time, these questions are at a level that are really appropriate for the, for the owner. This is a, this is a readiness assessment that we work on with prospective clients as part of our, of our getting to know one another process. It, it results in a, uh, a, sc- a score, so to speak, of how, of how well prepared the business is for a sale. We, we also come up with an estimate of value based on what we've learned and comparable transactions. It, and it is it is really with with the owners, and and it's all it's usually if there are multiple owners, then we 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 want uh, everybody to be as long as they're significant owners to be part of that discovery
1: process. Got it. So moving on, what pitfalls are there that you witness, and where I guess generally in the preparation process do you see the most challenges? If you want to go into that, sure.
2: I, I think that. L- looking at that question on a little bit from a little bit of a different dimension, what are buyers looking for? They're looking for good people and, and, and good partners from that respect, they're looking for growth. They're looking for a, a, an addressable market that's significant that support the growth. And I think in terms of those pitfalls, it's, I think the biggest thing is surprises when you have surprises during a process, it, it makes it hard. Mm-hmm. And the later and look, things happen. Sometimes numbers are missed. It happens in the history of the of the world of business. But the the, the sooner that the more full a job we can do in preparing, and sharing the appropriate messaging for what's uh, for anything that that uh, has occurred. It's it's good to do that at the at the right time in the process, not right at the beginning but probably before you go into an exclusive period where you've committed to working with just one buyer that's not necessarily the right time to 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 share something that could be interpreted as negative you want to you want to have the right messaging you want to show the right sensitivity to what's happened and let people know that before before you're too far into the process where you've really committed to to working with one uh, one buyer and, uh, they're, they're a lot, and one of the things we learn in our, in our uh, readiness assessment, there are, there are things where uh, they may be a negative, and, and it's also represents opportunity. We could have a client who hasn't really done much in marketing, for example, and you can look at that and say, well, they don't have a very good brand or a very good uh, market share or not what we'd like to be. But the, the, the flip side of that is that there's an opportunity for a new buyer, for a new owner to come in, invest in the marketing, and put their their stamp uh, that way to help grow the business and and uh, scale up what the other the, the strengths that that exist in other parts of the business.
1: Right.
2: So there are ways to there are ways to communicate things, of course, appropriately and and fully at the same time. Balancing, you know, it's it's there's usually two sides to that story. There's a there's something that people can look at as a as a weakness but it also means there's opportunity there
1: got it so i think that you use the term deal team so kind of transitioning over to putting your your team in place talk a little bit about you know should a business owner already have a team in place prior to when they start the conversations with you or is that really an element that you walk them through and help formulate
2: well, for us, and I think what underpins that is Greg made a great point at the beginning, which is the earlier that that a, that a client's working with somebody like you, a strategic partner on that on that side, of the business looking at, at, at the relationship holistically, the better off they're going to be. So, if we're we, we sometimes are referred in by a wealth advisor, a, a strategic partner such as yourself, sometimes somebody comes to us and they they don't have. An advisor, they might not have an attorney. It, it really varies, and we like to think that we're able to to meet people where they are and provide uh, help and and value and introductions. So it, there could be any you know, different permutations here, different different variations.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: We we love to we love to be able to introduce good good people good. Uh, M and A attorneys, good advisors of any number of different kinds, and it it really does depend. And it's also important because we're going to be as a deal team, we all seek to be trusted advisors to our clients, and and to work together in a collaborative way. And so there, as the as the M and A advisor, uh, we're going to, we'll we'll typically be talking with. Keeping in touch with people, we're typically working quite a bit uh, with the M&A attorney, for example, at the end of the deal. They may be... Pollinating some things earlier on, but when we get in the process where, where we're working on documents and so forth and negotiating terms, they're really important. As you all know, wealth advisors, the, the, the value that you provide really pervades so much of the, so much of the process. You know, I listed accounting tax advisors. Um, and, and I know you, you do some tax efficient strategies, but that's also an important piece of it. So we meet people wherever they are and do our best to, to make sure that, uh, that they're, they're thinking about these all of these uh, really important uh, seats at the, at the kind of virtual table.
1: Right, to kind of transition from that, what does the balance as far as value? So talk a little bit about the balance between creating value as an entrepreneur and a business owner, but also providing value for the prospective buyer or buyers and kind of juggling both of those at the same time.
2: Yeah, I we feel we feel there's a lot of alignment and it the price is like the price is important and we're we're always going to create a competitive marketplace and get strategic value for our clients at the same time the, there are a lot of ways to create win-wins and the one of the things that we really like to do is give is to give our clients good exposure to prospective buyers early in the process. So we'll share a, a limited amount of confidential information after we sign a confidentiality agreement. And then one of our main next steps is to have just a thirty minute video call with our between our client us and each of the prospective buyers and 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 have hold that call see where there's common ground, see if the values in a, in a deal are aligned. There, there are also some some really good pieces to that for our client, because frankly, it puts the buyer in a selling mode of wanting to persuade our client that they're the best buyer. And uh, it, buyers will will react much more quickly to the information that we share them if they've already met the owner in person, because they have a They have a stack of virtual deals on their desk and when they can say oh this is the this is the sea client we met them during that call we know who they are they know who we are it makes a difference and through having that kind of interaction you can we can start to map out for everybody what are the priorities in a deal how long does the owner want to stay on is it feasible to move the business or does it really need to stay where it is and you start to get that type of engagement and you and you start to build some really great discussion around the growth opportunities the lessons learned in the business if you were to hey mr. mr. or mrs. owner if you were in our shoes and you're buying the business what's the next hire we should be making if you had uh, you know a bigger checkbook where would you where would you invest your, your your dollars those those types of things so we help create options for our client and it gets everybody excited in the process they get a bigger picture of the growth we share the we can call them challenges or weaknesses or, or lessons learned in a constructive way to help inform the buyer about the the opportunities in the business we give we give people and make sure people have access to each other on a personal basis and through that you can you can build some win-wins you can build some situations where somebody sell, sells seventy-five percent of their their equity; they still have twenty-five percent, and they're happy about it. We have a we have a client whose business we sold. He he rolled over twenty-five percent of equity into a company, and they've continued to scale that. They've hit it great on the the timing for their industry, and I think at the end of the day, he's gonna make he's gonna make as much or more in that second bite of the apple. As he did when he sold the business uh, two years ago, and you, you don't want to necessarily count on that, but you want to create the best opportunity for for that future success.
1: Right, and a sub question, just based off of that, kind of, you talked a little bit more about the fit, but what about kind of finding finding the buyers, or or always having a pipeline of buyers that might be the right fit for X, Y, Z.
2: Yeah, we have put some structure to what we used to think about as as our out of the box thinking to help find buyers Mm -hmm. Uh, the best prospective buyer is often not usually not a direct competitor so one of the things we'll do is we'll sit down with clients we'll map out their product and service their their differentiated technology or process approach and then their markets Mm -hmm. and their, uh, their customer base We'll look at companies that intersect with them in all those areas. And then we'll look at those same uh, third party companies and say, okay, we know where they're, what they have in common with you, but what it is about you that is, that they see as most valuable. So it could be that uh, there's no intersection. Or perhaps there's some intersection in products and services. Or everybody's in in building products. Or everybody's in in uh, doing some type of doing some type of healthcare services. But perhaps there's a technology or an approach that the buyer can can continue to use, uh, not only in the acquired company, but can then can then fold over into their existing business. Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen that with in in some cases, or. Perhaps there's no overlap in, in the customer base, right? And they're not competing today because they have different products, but, uh, or, or they they have similar products, but they're in different, different markets. And so they can leverage one and each other that way too. So we look for those, we look for those types of ideas. We build a list of prospects. It's iterative. We'll come up with new ideas along the way, but that's how we build a, a really good base of uh, prospective buyers. I
1: know you kind of the, Beginning uh, spoke about owner priorities, but is there anything else that we can collaborate on? Yeah, I think
2: it, it, keeping keeping that that idea of our our clients' goals are the are kind of the north star for the process. We'll start with that, and then we'll end with that. When when we're working through multiple letters of intent to decide who's the right buyer to go with, we'll we'll hearken back to. Okay, we said these were these are the things that are really important to us. And here yes, here are the prices. And also here's the structure. And here's what we think this means for the future of your employees, for the legacy of the business, for what you'll be able to see in future growth. And and also frankly, when you know there are bumps in deals. And when there are bumps in deals, our feeling is you hearken back to your values and what's really driving the the transaction and and some and you, sometimes usually you can work it out when you when you start with those values to figure out what's really important there's an argument over dollars yes but it, because of something unexpected coming up but what's re- what's really important when you when you peel it back what what do we really care about what do they really care about do we have a do we have a a meeting of the minds on that and what this should look like and then you can figure out the dollar. So leaning into those priorities and doing our best to earn a trusted advisor role with our clients, that's, is, is really central to what we, what we do.
1: Great. Thanks, Tony. Thank you. Um, So I'm going to pass it back to Greg. So Greg, can you talk more, bringing it back to the personal pre-transaction planning strategies, what to consider?
0: Absolutely. Really. and, And thank you, Tony, really helpful stuff. So I'll start just by going over a a quote from uh, an organization I belong to called the Exit Planning Institute that suggests that nearly 80% of owners and founders of private company plan on the transaction of that company to substantiate and support their financial independence, yet fewer than 20% actually have a plan to do so. And I think this really underscores why it's so critical to begin this planning process early. So I'll start with that point to say that that in our observations on the personal side, that sweet spot is really 18 to 36 months to begin to think about driving the ideal outcome because of the various nuances that come into play. I think it's really key too to understand the nature of your equity. Uh, Is your your equity common stock? Is it phantom stock? is it options? Kevin's going to speak to that in a few moments. And something that's that's valuable is, a, is called a 409A. Uh, and this is an analysis that a company does when they begin to issue equity. And it really puts a value on what your shares are worth. And then from there, we believe it's really important to begin to do some probability forecasting. Because every founder, every entrepreneur believes they're going to have a great outcome and a great exit. And certainly, the entire team Tony referenced that I referenced wants that to happen as well. But what we generally recommend is consider three outcomes. Consider an ideal outcome. Consider a mediocre outcome. And what if there's no outcome at all? Because we've all seen deals fall apart uh, right at the two-yard line. So it's important to look at these at least three outcomes. And then in each one, what are the income tax implications, capital gain tax implications? What are the financial independence meaningful uh, outcomes? And what does it mean from a, an estate and a tax planning perspective? What are some of the issues from an insurance and risk management situation that are different at the optimal versus mediocre? So then we back into from those range of outcomes, that sets the foundation for the various strategies to, again, minimize those tax burdens and maximize the outcome. And then I'll just close by saying what Tony mentioned, which is really putting that team in place and having that team begin to interact and dialogue sooner than later also has a really um, meaningful impact on the outcome for the owner.
1: Got it. I know you already mentioned taxes, but to get into that a little bit further, can you highlight really what an executive owner entrepreneur should be considering from a tax strategy perspective?
0: Yes. So last year was interesting because it was certainly our busiest year that it was for Tony as well in terms of, of transactions. And I believe part of that was because of the potential for capital gain and income tax rates to increase. And there's still some banter back and forth about that. But it's our view that given the midterm election year, we're likely not going to see any meaningful changes in income or capital gain taxes. But but it's super important to understand the difference between the two. Is your equity subject to capital gain, long-term capital gain rates, or ordinary income rates? Because there's a there's a meaningful delta, you know, nearly 14% difference between the two. And understanding the tax implications of your equity is super important in terms of mitigating those responsibilities. Also, this, this tool that is often underused called an 83B election. So if you have equity subject to a vesting schedule, this 83B election is literally a form that you or your accountant files on your tax return in the year that you receive the equity. And in the IRS's eyes, what you've done is you've assumed ownership of that equity, even while it's subject to a vesting schedule. So let's say you have a five-year vesting schedule, 20% a year, which is fairly common based on what we see in, in private Especially growing emerging uh, growth companies. And so you file an 83B election because your shares are granted to you at, at pennies or, or small dollar values. But in year two, there's a transaction and you file the election. So even though you're only subject, you've only vested in two years, in the IRS's eyes, you've acquired all of that equity and all of it was subject to long term capital gains. Versus ordinary income. Very significant planning strategy if you have income subject to a vesting schedule, but it must be filed within 60 days of receiving your equity. Another very key planning strategy, especially if you're caring for adult loved ones. So we see a lot of this with the clients that we serve, and maybe they're helping out aging parents to maintain their financial independence throughout their lifetime. Maybe they're helping adult children to launch or to go through grad school or buy a home. If you've got equity that you're hoping will transact in the, in the near term, instead of writing a check to that child for grad school or for a down payment on the home, by shifting some equity in their name, now you, you're you subject to the gifting rules that's generally 16000 per person per year. There are ways to exceed that. But you're giving them your basis. And then here's the planning opportunity. The taxes are in their bracket. So if they're over 24, they avoid the kiddie tax rules. And if you're going to be in the highest marginal income tax bracket, capital gain bracket, and they're in the lowest, some, some meaningful capital gain avoidance can be accomplished. And then also on top of that, paying expenses directly. So on top of the 16000 per person per year, you can write checks to any healthcare institution, any educational institution on top of that 16000 per person per year.
1: And on the flip side, you know, what from a state or wealth transfer planning should someone be aware of or be thinking of?
0: This, too, was a big topic of discussion last year, but I think it's really been been resolved to this point. So first, let's understand what the current rules are. So each person uh, in this country, so married couple, two people, has what's called a unified credit exemption. That's a credit for their heirs against federal inheritance taxes. Now, some states, Pennsylvania, for example, has a state inheritance tax, but the federal government gives each person exemption that's around $12 million each. So married couple with the proper documents in place, and I'll speak to that. So you you want to make sure, even if you're well below $12 million, if you're growing a company towards an event and there's value in that company, please make sure you've got the, these main documents. Number one, a will or a trust. Who gets what? Number two, a power of attorney. Power of attorney is, is your spouse or a loved one's ability to, to sign financial documents on your behalf. Number three, a living will, which is um, you know, don't don't pull the plug, my health, keep my health care alive. And then the fourth, which we often see really underserved, underutilized in, in owners of private companies, executives of private company, a buy sell agreement. Buy sell agreement is a written agreement between shareholders. That if something happens to one shareholder, there's a mechanism, a vehicle, a strategy to provide liquidity to that deceased shareholder's family so that there's no forced selling of the company or adverse consequences to the company itself. So these are the really important documents that we think executives and founders of early stage companies, growing companies or companies approaching a transaction should have. So the reason this $12 million each is important is because this number is slated to drop. It's slated to drop from 12 each protecting 24 to six each protecting 12 at the end of 2025. So who knows? You know, Between a midterm election and a presidential election, we don't know what the change will be, but we know it is slated to drop at the end of 2025. So why is that important? Because it's important if the transaction of your business would put you over that number then you want to consider strategies that can remove some of the appreciation of that business unit, that equity in a company from your estate. That could be done by making an outright gift, an outright gift into an LLC or to a trust, which would immediately remove that ownership and get that appreciation out of your estate. Challenge is that also removes access to those funds from your estate and from your, your yourselves, you and your family. So there's two other strategies that we've done quite a bit of work with. And this is where, as Tony mentioned, having a good estate and tax attorney is really key in this process. But the first one is called a grantor retained annuity trust. So think of it as a trust that you would put shares of your company or business into. And when that transaction occurs, you're still able to get some portion of the income And then, after a certain period of time, it becomes a trust for your children. Those work well, but what's even more popular, what we did more of uh, recently, is a spousal lifetime access trust, or a SLAP. This allows a little bit more access to income and the use of that money while you're alive. So again, you've got a business, you've got ownership in a company, you expect an outcome that may push you above the numbers I mentioned. You can put a portion of that business, that company, that equity into a spousal lifetime access trust, and your spouse has access to income and principal certain provisions for the rest of his or her life. And then only after their demise does it become a trust for the kids. So it sort of, again, gives you the ability to to eat the fruit, but give away the tree. And these are some really popular strategies to remove that appreciation from your taxable estate.
1: So I'm going to transition over to Kevin. Let's talk a little bit about if you're someone or an executive who works for a public company, talk a little bit about what are some things you should even be aware of and consider.
3: Absolutely. That's a that's a really good question, Morgan. And and yeah, so if you're if you're a, a business owner, entrepreneur of, of a public company, really understanding what you have or what your grants are, what your equity is, what what kind of options you have is is very important. And I think this stat right here is, is quite alarming that, that a vast majority of people that that have these, these options, a lot of them go unexercised. And that and I think that's mostly because there isn't a clear understanding. And so, and Greg alluded to it earlier, but there are a lot of different kinds of equity compensation that, that you can be granted. There's common stock, like he said, there's restricted stock units, there's non-qualified stock options, there's incentive stock options, performance stock options, and that's just to name a couple of them. But it's important to understand all the differences and nuances with them because really the main reason is because they all have different tax implications. Some of them are are taxed at ordinary income and, and others such as incentive stock options actually have rules and criteria that you can meet to change ordinary income tax treatment into the more favorable capital gains tax treatment. So, uh, we spend a lot of times with, with executives and entrepreneurs going through their, their equity compensation, really formulating a, a, a cohesive plan, because oftentimes people have a, an assortment of all different kinds. So sometimes the strategy is doing what's called a cashless exercise with non-qualified stock options to, to raise some cash to then purchase incentive stock options to start the clock. Because if you hold incentive stock options two years from grant and one year from exercise, you turn that tax treatment from ordinary income to capital gains treatment. So there's a lot of different strategies that, that people can implement to, to, again, maximize their outcome. Um, and, then, and, and then also what people overlook a lot of times is, is what their own equity in their company means in regards to their overall portfolio or, or liquid asset base. It's very easy for people that are continuing to get equity on an annual basis for that amount to continue to grow. And then before you know it, a large, large portion of your overall net worth could be stuck to your company or, or within your company equity. So we think it's very prudent to when, you, when you're approaching that 30% kind of concentrated position level. It's really important to begin to think about ways to diversify that because... Uh, God forbids! You know something happens, and and you're not only working for the company, but you also have the majority of your assets tied with that company. Then that's that's definitely uh, worst case scenario. So diversifying that concentration risk is very important.
1: And lastly, assuming there is a transaction, post transaction, you know what should a business owner, executive, entrepreneur, entrepreneur even consider once something's said and done?
3: Yeah. Yeah. So as the dust has settled and and assuming everything went according to plan and then you worked with a team like, like Tony's and everything went, everything went according to plan, you're most likely going to have a really high income tax year. So after that is said and done, there are some things after this that you can do to try and mitigate that tax bill that you're going to have that year. Uh, So first of all, There's accelerating 529 contributions. So if if a goal of yours is to help your your loved ones or your children or or relatives help with their future educational costs, 529s are are the best vehicle to do that. How they work is is you make current year contributions. Those contributions are invested. All growth is tax-free when used for future uh, educational purposes. And and if you're a Pennsylvania resident, you also get a, a state tax deduction. So if you do the max amount um, of $32,000 for a married fi- or married filing jointly uh, couple, you can deduct that amount on your state income taxes. So Pennsylvania, for example, Pennsylvania is approximately a 3% tax rate on 32,000. That's approximately $1,000 tax savings that you'll have. Um, and then the other benefit with, with 529s is you can take advantage of the five-year forward rule. And so what that allows you to do is chunk five years worth of of contributions in one year. So you would do that to get as much money in that tax sheltered investment vehicle as quickly as possible. So, for example, if you have a one-year-old and and they go to college when they're 18, you can get as much money as you can in there from the get-go. That's only going to have more time to grow and compound. So a really smart strategy there. And then the last couple are, are really focused more on marrying your, your charitable inclinations and then marrying that with, with tax planning. So philanthropy and tax planning. Then the first vehicle that's that's super smart is what's called a donor advised fund. So think about a donor advised fund as a, as a charitable waiting room. I think that's the easiest way to think about it. And so what this allows you to do is, again, take advantage of a tax deduction in the year that you need it most. So assuming that This transaction happened, big spike in income year. You want to be able to try and mitigate that as best or as as most as possible. So let's also take the scenario where you're charitably inclined. You have charities that you plan to contribute to for the next 10 years, 20 years of your life. For example's sake, let's just say you're going to contribute $10,000 for the next 10 years. That's $100,000 that that you're more than likely going to donate to this charity. Well, you can take that $100,000 and you can donate that to, or you can contribute that to your donor advised fund in the year that you have this transaction. And so what that's gonna do is you're gonna lower your taxable income by that $100,000. And so the nice thing is you have the rest of your lives to de- or the rest of your life to determine where those dollars go. So a really, really awesome vehicle to capture a, a chunked uh, tax deduction in the year that you need it most. Uh, and then the other vehicle is, is called a, a charitable remainder trust. This is similar to the to the uh, trust that Greg mentioned earlier, but this one is is a little bit different because the ultimate destination of of the corpus that you add to this trust is a charity. So how this works is you you take a sum of money, you put it in this charitable remainder trust. During your lifetime, you're able to derive a benefit from it. You're you're able to derive an income stream but at your passing at your demise, that sum, that corpus, it goes to the charity of your choosing. Uh, Because you get a benefit during your lifetime, you don't get as much of a tax deduction as you would in the donor advised fund. But again, a really nice vehicle, especially to help supplement your income stream, maybe through retirement, that might be a a reason that you might choose this type of vehicle. Uh, And then lastly, the Uh, education improvement tax credit, this isn't necessarily a a strategy to reduce your state income tax bill. It's more so to redirect it. So how this works is if there's a uh, non-public K through 12 school or or an educational organization that has these credits available, if you make a two-year commitment, you can offset up to 90% of your your, uh, Pennsylvania state income tax deduction. So that ninety percent offsets that remaining ten percent acts as a charitable uh, deduction. So again, a good way to not necessarily reduce your state tax bill, but to redirect it. And then, in just in closing, I just wanted to make everyone aware of a new tool that our team has created. I think it, it's it's more important, or it's it's ever more important to. to, to kind of unveil this now because it really speaks to all these different strategies that we, that we just talked about. And so I have it right here. It's called, we call it our equity compensation analysis tool. Uh, it really, really helps, helps our clients dig deep into their specific equity compensation scenarios and, and structures and really to ultimately provide a deliverable to, to explain and, and outline the steps that they should take to optimize their outcome. So, if that's something that is interest that is of interest to you, we'd be happy to to send that along as a follow up. Great,
0: thank you.
3: Well, thank you, uh,
0: thank you, Tony. Thank you, Kevin. And I know we have covered a lot of ground tonight, and really appreciate everyone's attention. As Kevin mentioned, we've got a couple resources for you. One, we were happy to run this equity compensation analysis, which will give you some clear insight on ideas and strategies to to not only maximize the equity compensation, but reduce the tax burden. Um, I've also got our 2022 liquidity planning white paper, where we talk about changes, the income tax rates, and what are some of the more detailed income tax and estate planning strategies that would be worthwhile considering before a transaction. So uh, I know we covered a lot. and, And I see one question we have, which is, Kevin, maybe you can explain the dual nature. You mentioned two benefits, two tax avoidances with the donor advised fund. Maybe you can oh, yeah. explain that in a little bit more detail.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so what I didn't mention is, is there are different manners in which you, you can use simply cash and, and you get a, a tax deduction on that. But you can also use low basis securities. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have shares of Apple that you, that you purchased 10 years ago, with a, which a, with let's say a, that you spent $2,000 on that's now grown to $10,000. You can use those shares of $10,000 of Apple. You'd send that to the donor-advised fund. You get the charitable deduction on the fair market value. And this allows you to wipe your hands clean of that embedded capital gain tax that you would have been liable for. So, again, a really, really smart way to use uh, low-basis securities as the funding vehicle.
0: Well, thank you all. We appreciate your time this evening, and we'll be reaching out to get you the deliverables that Kevin and I mentioned. And if you have any questions on any of the content that we discussed tonight, please feel welcome to reach out. We're here to help you as a resource. Thank you for your time.
4: Saring Strategic Partners is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Sarian Strategic Partners and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims, And make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data or other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Saring Strategic Partners and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.